the, the very hasty title I have given to this message is Generational Trauma. That's kind of a buzzword these days. Some of you that are on social media or are connected with the young, hip crowd might have heard of generational trauma. Um, those of you who are parents, apparently you have inflicted your generational trauma on your children, but it's okay because you received it from your parents. But see, our children are going to stop the generational trauma. There's a spiritual application to that. Let's turn to Exodus Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. And I'm going to read there verses, verses 5 through 8. I'll also just say something, kind of a, a personal note. This is something I had I'd intended to do and say. Um, in my own studies, I have become more and more dissatisfied with the translation of God's name as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Because that's not his name. His name is not Lord. Now, there's, there's history. There's reasons. I've read about those. I'm not a scholar, but I understand why it was done. But I just kind of felt like, uh, you know, I wouldn't like it if you called me Bill or George or, or that guy. I like you to use my name. And so I want to use God's name when I come across it in Scripture. When you see the word LORD in all caps in your Bible, this is true of the King James as well as the New King James, that capital L-O-R-D, all caps, that's the name of God. It's been translated as Jehovah uh, since the time of, of King James. Um, more recent scholars say, well, we, we understand the Hebrew language a little better now. That's maybe not a great transliteration of, of the name. But I'm going to stick with that. Just I feel like in my language, God's name is Jehovah. My son Ian here, his name in Scotland would be Ian. In uh, England would be John. In Germany would be Johan. In Russia would be Ivan. In Spanish it would be Juan. I feel like, and this is just me, I'm not teaching this, I'm just saying, just, just for me, why I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I feel like God's name in my language is Jehovah, and so I'm going to use that here. So, out of the New King James, in Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 8. And just to give some context, I'm sorry, I keep interrupting myself. Um, Israel had sinned greatly. Moses had seen the judgment of God upon Israel. Moses said, I like how the, the, the King James says it. Moses says to God, I beseech thee. I see this broken man pleading with God. He needs something more. He's seen the judgment of God and he says, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And this is God's fulfillment of that. Exodus 34 verse 5. Now Jehovah descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Jehovah. And Jehovah passed before him and proclaimed, Jehovah, Jehovah God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in kindness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And here we get to the heart of my message today. 
by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for your word. I thank you for your spirit who communicates to us Jesus, who teaches us of Jesus. Help us today, Father, to receive from your word what you have for us. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage uh, comes from my original notes. Uh, just, just one passage out of many. Uh, the rest of them are... You can ask me about them later. It was a good message. I liked it. I'd like to tell you about it. Ask me about it later. But this passage... The part I'm focusing in on, the iniquity of the father unto the children and the children's children, that makes me tremble. That is a frightening message. Very often, we who know Jesus, we who have no fear of condemnation, I think most of us know a few things about the grace of God. We see the love, the tenderness of God. And we don't always look at this aspect of God. You know, when Jesus, you look in the book of Revelation, Jesus rides out on a white horse. So many wonderful pictures of Jesus. We want to be with Jesus and close to Jesus and in communion with Jesus. But when you look in the book of Revelation at what Jesus is going to do, Jesus, this tender, gentle man, who said to the adulteress, I do not condemn you. Who said to the thief, who was suffering a capital sentence. This wasn't some guy who'd you know, pickpocketed two coins. This is a man whose thievery was so bad that the Romans said, we've got to kill him horribly. Jesus said to that thief, you'll be with me today in paradise. And that's so often we think of when we think of Jesus. But we also need to think of Jesus riding out in judgment on the world. We need to remember that our God is a consuming fire. Our God has said, and I believe the word of God, he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And that horrifies me. Now, I understand the need for it. Some of you are in the medical field. I'm sure you've witnessed people uh, having to suffer for a cure. Um, people sometimes say, if, if God is so good, why is there suffering? Well, I say, if God is not, I'm sorry, if doctors are so good, why did I, when I was four years old, have to be jammed in the arm with a needle? 
I understand that sometimes there has to be some damage in order to enact a cure. When there's a cancer, sometimes that has to be cut out. When a limb is mangled or gangrenous, it might need to be cut off. When a person in the Old Testament had leprosy, they had to be separated from everyone and everything. And so I understand, I see the need for this kind of judgment, but it horrifies me. Let's turn to Jeremiah, chapter 32 and verse 18. That was something that God said at the time of the giving of the law. And if you read in Exodus 34, you can actually go back and read in Exodus 20 and in Exodus 33 and in Numbers 14. Those are some other passages I have here. Those exact same words about the third and fourth generation, right there at the very beginning of the nation of Israel with Moses, God said, I will visit iniquity for generations. I want to go to what is not quite the end of the nation, but pretty near, in Jeremiah 32. If you've studied European history, you've probably read about you know, the sack of Rome and you know, the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, the people who lived that time in the city of Byzantium to the east considered they were part of the Roman Empire, and the fact that the old capital was destroyed didn't really matter. It was the same empire. It continued. Historians, though, looking back, they say, well, this was really the end of, of the empire. There's the Byzantine Empire that came later, but there came a time when what we think of as the Roman Empire, I mean, it was ended. Rome was captured by its enemies. I kind of think that way about Israel. There was a kingdom that came to an end when they were carried away captive. Now, the people of Israel continued. God continued to have this special people. He does continue to have a special people. They're kind of, you know, on hold for now. But we see at the end of this occupation of the land in Jeremiah 32, verse 18. And I think this is a, this is a semi-quote. It's certainly a callback to that passage. Jeremiah thirty-two eighteen. You show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, whose name is Jehovah of hosts. That aspect of God did not change through this entire period. We like to think, as I said, about the grace and the love of God, but the condemnation of God, God's, um, i trying to think how to describe this, God's inherent quality. This isn't just something that he does, it is something that he is. God destroys sin. It is what he is. That did not change through the entire duration of Israel's time in the land. I don't think it was any different before. I don't think it's any different now. I will give you a very, very practical example of this that all of you will immediately grasp. How many of you have ever taken of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Anybody, show of hands. 
Anybody. And yet, here we are. Let's turn to the book of Isaiah. We'll go there to chapter 43. Isaiah 43, we'll read verses 27 and 28. And then we'll go back and we'll read 25 through 28 to give it some context. Isaiah 27 and 28. Your first father sinned, and your mediators have transgressed against me. So real quick thought. Do we have a mediator who has not transgressed Jehovah? Yes, we do. But at that time, God said, the mediators you have now, they have transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. I will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. Now, to give you some respite, let me go back and read that from verse 25. So Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. He doesn't do this just because he wants to do good for you. He does this because he is a good and a loving and a kind God. For his sake, he blocks out our transgressions. And I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. And then he goes on and pronounces judgment. So I don't want us to lose sight of that grace and that love that God has. But I don't want us to lose sight of the condemning judgment of God that is a part of his nature. Let's go to Job chapter 21. Job chapter 21 and verse 19. Job 21, 19. They say, God lays up one's iniquity for his children. Let him recompense him that he may know it. Let his eyes see his destruction and let him drink the wrath of the Almighty. Turn back to Isaiah. We'll look at Isaiah 14 and verse 21. Isaiah 14 and verse 21. Prepare slaughter. For his children. I want you to think about the imagery of that. Just let's pause right there. Let's just meditate on that for a moment. Prepare slaughter 
for his children. We don't have very many uh, children here, little children. We have a few. God says, prepare slaughter for his children because of the iniquity of their fathers. Lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face of the world with cities. I said earlier that I find this to be a terrifying message. And this is why. It's one thing to say, kind of in the abstract, God might do this. But then to consider the consequences of one's own actions. That the consequences of that sin can redound for generations. Just as Adam's did. Now, I do want to draw a very bright line here and make something very clear. On this side of the line, we have eternal judgment. I don't think the things we've talked about here so far today have to do with eternal judgment. I think these are natural judgments. On the other side, we have temporal judgments, things that last only for a period of time. I think Adam's sin... The consequences of that are going to last through the entirety of time that humanity is on the earth. There will come a time when this natural world, all that we can see, the heavens and the earth, it's going to be destroyed in part, I believe, because of the sin of Adam. Now, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. That's on the other side of that bright line in eternity. But that sin of Adam has been and will be visited on all people to the end of uh, the residence, to the end of the time that people are on the earth. The sins that you commit can have consequences that last for generations. I I will not uh, give any specific examples, but I could tell you about people uh, that I know that I've seen them make decisions that have been disastrous in their lives, and I've been able to see it's disastrous in the lives of their children, and I've been around long enough now that I can say, I can see it's going to be disastrous for their grandchildren. And these are, these are God's children, people who, who know grace. And just seeing those consequences, those very light consequences, I understand I think what God is is talking about here. So don't confuse God's eternal judgment with the judgment he enacts in the natural. I think that if you're condemned by God for all of eternity, it's going to be because of your actions. And I say I think that. I think that because that's what the scripture says. But in the natural, there can be consequences of sin that can carry on for generations. So, you know, generational trauma. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 28. Again, just kind of a, just a moment of respite while we consider this. Isaiah 28 and verse 24. 
maybe. No, sorry, 21. Isaiah 28 and verse 21. For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. I want to draw your attention to that those last two words, his unusual act. You know, God opposes sin in all its forms, and God takes action against it. But it's not what he usually wants to do. God wants to bless His judgment, his condemnation of sin, you know, again, I likened it earlier to cutting a cancer out of someone. I don't think the medical community as a whole, just in general, wants to cut people open and take pieces out. That's not the usual thing. When it's necessary, then maybe that's something they feel needs to be done. But, you know... The medical community as a whole would much prefer that you avoid carcinogens, uh, that you, you, know, you don't smoke on airplanes, and that you not do the things that might lead to a cancer that has to be removed. They would rather keep you healthy than have to cut you open. And I kind of see God having the same mindset. I want to bless you. I want to do good for you. But should the need arise, I will, I will judge you. One other distinction I want to draw out if we go to Deuteronomy chapter 24. There's who God is, there's what God is, there's what God does. It is very, very different, and this should be obvious, from who people are and what people do. God, in his law that he gave to Moses for the children of Israel, he regulates the behavior of people. And this is what he says people should do in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. So it is not given to people to say, hey, you know, your grandpappy harmed my grandpappy, and now I'm going to harm you. And you think of you know, what was the Hatfields and the McCoys from you know, American Western folklore. They had this generations-long feud. Like, God says... Not to do that. You don't harm children because of what their parents did. Let's go now to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. And we'll read there verse 29. Actually, I'm going to back up. I'm going to read verse 28. 
Jeremiah 31, verse 28. It shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But every one shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. So God made clear that there's a day coming when that's, you know, that, that, uh, that generational judgment isn't going to be uh, the way in Israel. The reason for that, I could probably ask my Sunday school class, my seven, eight, nine-year-olds, and, and they would know the answer. Why will God no more do that? Because of Jesus. God sent his son uh, to bring an end to the need for judgment if people would lay hold. Now, there's a, there's a story that comes to mind, Dad. If I have this right, correct me if I'm wrong. The Lord led you to go across the country to visit someone, and you offered them correction, and their response was that God was gracious and they didn't need to fear correction. Do I understand that correctly? <laughs> I may be conflating a couple of different stories. Um, but it's, it's something I remember my dad talking about. Offering correction to a person saying, hey, you need to not sin. I remember no specifics whatsoever, which is why I, I called my dad out on the spur of the moment. Um, but, you know, you need to be careful about what you do. And the response was, I, I, I think, what I seem to recall the person said was, Oh, Dave, don't you know we're under grace? A child of God. Someone understood the, the grace of God. I'm getting the thumbs up. I think I remember that phrase right. Uh, but believing that grace didn't just cover sin, it permitted and allowed sin. And I think that's what we as children of God need to consider today. We want to understand the nature of God. Paul talks about Jesus. He says, that I may know him. How many of you know and love somebody? You don't need to show your hands, I know you all do. How many of you know their flaws? Now I'm going to ask a really hard question, and you're probably going to give the wrong answer if I ask you to respond. How many of you love them in spite of their flaws? I've always felt that was the wrong answer. You know someone with all their flaws, and you love them as they are. Now... You wish they'd get better. <laughs> God loves us as we are. God found us in sin and loved us in our sin. And he saved us from wrath. He has the power to make us pure. I want to know God 
as he is. I want to know his grace and his love and his mercy, but I also want to know his burning holiness that destroys sin. I want to know his grace and his love that can purify me from sin through Jesus. But I want to know that he will make me pure. And if I don't allow him to work his usual work, he may deploy his unusual work, what the King James calls his strange work. Paul talks about chastisement. You know, we don't think in terms of condemnation. God is going to send us to hell. God is going to slaughter our children. But if we sin and we allow that sin to infect our life, the people in contact with us will become infected by it. And the people we love the most are the closest to us and will be the first to become infected by the consequences of that sin. And it will manifest in their lives. And as time goes on and they have families of their own and they have children, that sin will infect the children's children, and so on and so on until someone returns to the word of God, till someone goes to Jesus and says, I want to be like you. Purify me. I don't want to go on with my day to day just like I always have. I want to be better. Saints, that doesn't happen much. To sin and know the effects of sin in your life and on your family and to say, well, they can go to God. It doesn't happen much. And that is a very kind of dark note to end on. So let's go to Zechariah. Zechariah was a prophet during the time the people were returning from captivity. In Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 2, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, and I'll return to you. And this is a message given to the people who were returning. If we go to Ezekiel uh, chapter 18, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 2, and this will sound a little bit familiar. What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, says Jehovah, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. I'll jump down to verse 14. If 
He begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise. I'll skip over a bunch more ifs. At the end of verse 17, he shall surely live. Ezekiel 18, verse 19. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. going to touch on current events real quick. Before we read Jeremiah 32, verses 37 through 39, there's going to come a day when Israel will be ruled by the Prince of Peace. And Israel will have peace, and Israel will teach peace. Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 37 through 39. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in great wrath. I, I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. That hasn't been fulfilled yet. They shall be my people. And I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. I want to know the grace, the love, the mercy the patience of God. But I want to know his righteousness, his holiness, his absolute destruction of sin. I think of what the prophet says at the end of the book, having seen all that's going to happen, he says, even so, come Lord Jesus. Jesus.